Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. familiar with beginning class with the sound of Om. Uh, we chant the sound Om. Um, the best part of chanting the sound Om is the ending. Let's try it together. It goes like this. So imagine you had a really good espresso. Drink the espresso. And then there's only one response. (coughs) Mm. Mm. Can you feel that? (laughs) So you don't even need the espresso. Because you just get fineness. I remember one time asking Patabi Joyce, how do you get good alignment? And he said to meditate on deities. So, um, if you meditate on the Buddha, there's a Buddha up there, um, and you look at the face of the Buddha, uh, the Buddha has this beautiful alignment in his face. Uh, If you look at Kuan Yin, uh, she has a beautiful smile. But if you actually study almost all of the Hindu deities, they also have this smile. So does the Mona Lisa, if you're an atheist. If you're an atheist, you just study the Mona Lisa. People are wondering, what was the Mona Lisa doing when she was painted? She was actually on a Vipassana retreat, 10 days, and she was painted on the ninth day. That's when the samadhi was beginning. So she has this smile of the Buddha, actually. Um, So whenever I, I teach atheists, I always just say, Just meditate on the Mona Lisa. Um, Or if you're in the Caribbean, you just say, meditate on Bob Marley. (laughs) Same difference. Um, So this soft smile, so let's just try that again. When the corners of your lips lift, So it's not one of these extroverted American smiles. Sorry, why? It's more of <laughs> I was trying to find a way to get Wyatt to blush. So we finally it's really easy. So, but 
Um, so the soft smile. And you'll notice that when you smile softly, the base of your tongue drops and then the sides of your tongue widen and lift so that the root of your tongue, where your tongue turns into your throat, takes the same shape as your lips. Can everybody feel that? So when the soft smile appears, you'll notice that the energy in the central axis of the tongue releases and your tongue can release from its base all the way through to the root. And it's said that your tongue is an embassy of your mind. So when your mind is gripping and your mind is holding on to all these stories, it shows up as residue in your tongue. So it's not burned up in awareness, right? What mindfulness can't burn up shows up as residue physiologically in your tongue. So this is the physiology of compassion, actually. Because when your tongue releases, so does your viewpoint. So when you're holding on tight to your viewpoint, tongue is all uptight. Can you feel this? Yeah. And when you release your viewpoint, when you release your tongue, you release your viewpoint. And this is what happens whenever we have aesthetic experiences. If you see something beautiful, like a gorgeous sunset or a beautiful piece of art, see a beautiful piece of art, the tongue releases. And maybe one of the reasons why we love art so much is not necessarily dependent on the object, that it's because it's Mark Rothko or because it's Van Gogh, but maybe it has more to do with the subjective experience of the releasing of the root of the tongue and the releasing of the palate. We love aesthetic experiences because they interrupt our viewpoint. This is why we love beauty. When you see something beautiful, it interrupts your perspective. Uh, the other thing that happens is there's another half to it, which is your soft palate. Does everybody know where the soft palate is? If you take your tongue and you push it into the roof of your mouth, it's very hard. But if you go back and up, are very, very soft. Uh, there's actually a practice called Kachari Mudra, where you take a pine needle and you slice this a little flat every day for seven days. We're going to do this tomorrow. <laughs> um, and then you can stand your tongue straight up and down in the central axis. And then when you do pranayama practices, like alternate nostril breathing, you don't have to use your hands. <laughs> use your tongue. Yeah. We'll, we'll work on that after the anus technique I was talking about the other day. Um, please don't repeat any of this. <laughs> Even though it's being recorded by 10 iPhones and two cameras. Um, okay, so... The general idea is that when your viewpoint gets interrupted, the first thing that happens is your soft palate, right? Soft palate releases. Okay? This always happens when you're about to have an aesthetic experience. So I'm a little bit of a snob around espresso, if you haven't noticed. <laughs> so if I go somewhere for an espresso, this is how I decide if I like a city. I'll go to like six or seven different places. And I usually walk in like this. People who have fine taste, they naturally get this alignment because it helps release the root of your palate. 
So I'll walk in and they'll hand me the espresso <laughs> and I'll put it under my mouth. See if you can feel this. Lift your chin a little bit. And just as you're about to smell something, what happens to your soft palate? It just releases. It just lifts up like an umbrella, like a canopy, like the dome of the sanctuary. It just opens up. And then your tongue releases. So, so you're about, you haven't even tasted the espresso yet. It's just everything's opening up. It's a religious experience. Now one day when you finish seventh series and you've done you know, all the different stages of samadhi, then you just take up espresso as your practice. <laughs> At least that's what I convince myself. So you're smelling the espresso, soft palate releases, and then you taste it. And then what's the response? So that's the sound of om, is all those movements within the mouth. And this releases the diaphragm of the throat, which is called the web of nectar. The nectar referring to the nectar of compassion. So the diaphragm of your throat is called jalandara bandha. Uh, Jalan is a net. Dada is a place, just like mula dada, physical place. And... um, Bonda is a bonding of sensation and attention together in one location in time and space. So all this comes together uh, uh, as the experience of compassion that arises when awareness is stable, there's not reactivity, and your viewpoint is suspended. And this is just the physiological side of that psychological pattern. There's a wonderful story where once upon a time there were gods, goddesses, and demons. And they wanted to find the holiest nectar, the nectar of compassion. It has two names, Karuna, compassion. Uh, it's also often called in Indian mythology, Amrita. Uh, remember when you put A in front of a word? It turns it into its opposite. So mrita means death, but mrit is actually where you get the word mortal. And the mr in mortal is where you get the word meal. Comes from the same root, which literally means to gr- a meal literally means to grind down. So amrita means not mortal, right? So being able to touch that which doesn't die, which traditionally is considered the nectar of compassion. Compassion doesn't die. More on that later. Um, So the gods, goddesses, and demons wanted to find the sweetest nectar of compassion. So they came up with a harebrained scheme, worse than the scheme our mayor came up with in the past few weeks. Um, More on that later also. Uh, So... What they decided to do was to take the ocean, okay, so all the waters on Earth, and to churn them, just like one would churn butter. Has anyone here ever churned butter before? Yeah, it's going to be a hip thing soon. As soon as we're over our vegan diets, we're going to go back to churning butter. Stone Age, something. Anyways, more on that also. I have a few tangents going on today <laughs> with my thoughts of espresso. My mind is going in various directions. Um, 
So what they did was they took a serpent and they wrapped it around a tortoise and then they turned the tortoise upside down. So can you picture this? So there's a tortoise lying on its back and I don't know if tortoises have navels, but supposedly this tortoise had a navel. It's kind of strange. And then they wrapped a serpent around the tortoise, which was lying on its back. The gods and goddesses took the, he- the tail, and the demons took the fire-breathing head. And then they lay the upside-down tortoise in the center of the ocean. And then they took the holiest mountain, Mount Meru, which is holy because it's upside down. You see this a lot in tantric art. And then they took this inverted mountain and they put it on the navel of the tortoise, which is lying upside down in the ocean, wrapped with a serpent's tail. This is called Indian mythology. (laughs) And then they started spinning the tortoise in the ocean, just like they were churning butter, but they were churning the ocean because they were vegan. (laughs) And they were churning the ocean And the ocean started moving in whirlpools so that they could distill the singular form of compassion as a drop of nectar from all of the waters on earth, salty waters. Is this a true story? Yes. So what happened, I was waiting for somebody to say. So what happened was, as they were churning, out of the central axis of the mountain, so whenever you read about Mount Meru in Indian mythology, it's always a metaphor for the body. So they're churning the body, and then out of the central axis of the body came a horrible stench that filled the universe, like the worst kind of smell you've ever smelled. Like everybody was just putting their, even like ants and bees were covering their noses. (laughs) because it smelled so bad. So they were hoping that if they churned the ocean with the mountain, that out of the central axis of the mountain, the sweet nectar would show up. But what showed up? Toxins. This is a little bit like our practice, isn't it? You come to yoga and you just want the sweet nectar because everybody promises the sweet nectar. But when you start really churning the body, what comes out of the central axis? All your reactivity, all of your habits, all the old stories. And usually that's when people quit. Because they think, oh, all this toxicity is coming up. This is not the right practice for me. Really, I should be doing CrossFit. (laughs) But actually, it's because the toxicity is arising that you know the practice is working. But then they don't know what to do about it. And I think a lot of us are like this too, right? You see all the toxicity arise, but then you don't actually have the tools to work with the toxicity. So then you need more tools, which are usually built into the tradition, actually. So what they do is they call on Shiva, who symbolizes pure awareness. So this is an open awareness that doesn't discriminate. And Shiva, for those of you who know, in Indian mythology, has a very, very long tongue. Like, who is the singer who has the long tongue? Gene Simmons. Gene Simmons. Okay. So, Gene Simmons' tongue. And, um, And Shiva comes with his tongue, and he slides it 
He inserts it into the top of the central axis, and he slides it all the way down into the pelvic floor of the mountain. And then he sucks out all of the toxins and then holds them right in the root of the tongue, which is called the Jalandarabandha. That's why Shiva is usually called the blue-throated one, his throat's blue, or he has a blue snake wrapped around his throat. And he holds the toxicity and just goes, hmm, hmm. In other words, he doesn't swallow it, attachment, and he doesn't spit it out. Dvesha. Or, to use more psychological terminology, he doesn't blame it out, and he doesn't blame it in. And most of us, when we have uh, the toxins arising, we usually turn them against ourselves, or we turn them against other people. And so Shiva is this beautiful uh, illustration of being able to hold the toxicity with equanimity right in the center of the throat, not swallowing, not spitting out. And this is where you get Jalandharabandha. So Jalandharabandha is actually the ability... Oh, we misunderstand Jalabandha these days. We like... It's all like gross anatomy. Like John Navarra is pulling your chin in as hard as you can in the shoulder stand. Um, but Jalandara Banda is a subtle practice that refers to the ability of releasing the tongue in the face of our habits. Releasing our viewpoint in the face of rigid perspectives. And uh, a scholar named Wendy Doniger told me that a helpful way to think about stories like this is that the, the philosophical traditions of yoga were mostly codified by men. And that most of the mythological stories and physical practices, which were not written down, were probably created by women. I thought this was an interesting idea. So that it's almost like saying that practices like Jalandhara Bandha, as an example, is a way of saying to a text like the Yoga Sutra, how do you actually experience this in your body? What does this feel like? Rather than a kind of philosophical position. But we'll have to save gender uh, for a little bit later. Um, it's said that Shiva actually left a little bit of poison at the bottom of the mountain, didn't take all of it out, and that poison is where all the insects and serpents get their poison from. Just left a little in there. So I really love this story, because I think this story really exemplifies what it means to have some elegance in our practice. To be able to see that when something difficult arises, you don't always have to do something. And the not doing something is also a kind of doing something that creates a new samskara. That there is a gap here where we can delay our reactivity or delay 
our need for gratification when we're caught in an addictive cycle. This is so important. So what happens is, is that your home alone, do you remember this example? Your home alone, the sensations of loneliness arise in the body. There's a freezer. There's ice cream in the freezer. There are stories about what you should do now, operating both consciously and unconsciously, in the body and mind. Um, But we can actually stay with the experience and ride it out, like a turbulent wave. And we can see the stories play themselves out, but in not identifying with the stories, they don't necessarily disappear, but they don't have so much power. And that plants a new groove with a different ethical and cognitive dimension or possibility. Now, there are also states of meditative practice where we're not just observing the stories, but they actually don't show up anymore. And we're not going to focus on that so much in the context of these classes. But I'll just add that there's really two different sides to meditation practice. One side is focused awareness, which is where you have an object and you stay with the object. Stay with the object, stay with the object, stay with the object. So you stay with the breath, stay with the breath, stay with the breath. And then something happens where once you get the hang of it, the hindrances and stories stop coming into that space. There's such absorption there in the object of meditation that the stories stop making their way in. So um, could you hand me that bowl, please? The way I like to think about it is this, is that this is your mind. Some of you can't get in there. Hello? Um, This is the mind, this is attention, and this is the object of meditation, let's say the breath. So the tension comes in, feels inhaling and exhaling, and comes off again. Oh, that's a good story. What was he saying about espresso? Um, The attention comes in, it falls off, comes in, falls off, comes in, falls off. That's the beginning phase of meditative practice. We're all working with that. And we call this mindfulness, or smriti, which is being able to come back again. Falling off, come back again. Again, and again, and again, and again, and again. Over time, the attention stops falling so far off, and it starts to just hover here, at the top. And we can stay with the object of meditation. The attention's wiggling around a little bit, but it's not falling off. And when that can happen in a sustained way, the whole process flips. And then the attention sits inside the object of meditation. So if you imagine that now this is the breath, the attention is just held in the breath, and but when it starts to go away, it naturally comes back again towards the center. You see? In the Yoga Sutra, this is the difference between dadana. Sixth limb of yoga and dhyana. 
the seventh limb of yoga, is that the attention can stay with the breathing or whatever the object of meditation is, but it doesn't fall off anymore. And then it's protected from the hindrances and from overthinking and judging and so much commentary. And this happens quite naturally. When we get into those phases of practice, and again, I'm not going to go too far into this today, but this line actually starts to bend. Here, and some argue, it can really bend into here. So that the mind can get so still that the brain is not actually producing new seeds. Uh, in the yoga tradition, these seeds are called samadhi uh, bija. Bija means a seed. And we can actually bend the meditation practice so that new actions are not actually being performed neurologically. And again, that could bring up a whole bunch of questions we can get into, but I don't want to get too far into that. But I just want to mention that, that this is bendable. You can bend it all over the place here. Okay, it's not just a stiff line. So, the deeper we get into being present with the breath, moment to moment to moment to moment to moment, the more this absorption develops and the less stories there are created. That's called focused awareness. But also, we can do another practice which we call open monitoring. So once you can stay with the breath for a sustained period of time, usually I get students to then let go of their breathing and just open up and just monitor whatever's happening in moment-to-moment -moment experience. Okay? And in that respect, it's not so much that the stories are not present, it's actually we let them come back again but we just start to see them as stories. We start to see all those stories as a film, and we just don't get involved. And that's also a really, really good practice. What I want to focus on today, that was all preliminary, <laughs> is how to take this into your daily life. Because I think most of us here have a sense of how this works when we're sitting still on a cushion. But what I want to explore is how can we make this come alive? How can we put this to work in our work, in our relationships, in our choices, in our actions? Before I go further, are there any burning questions? Only burning questions. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. There's samskara and samsara, right? Yes. What's the what's, what's samsara again? Because I don't remember. Okay. So a sangskara is a psycho-physical, ecological groove. Okay. It's habit. Uh -huh. um, the part of that habit that is malleable is um, called karma. Uh -huh. And the part of it that really uh, is hard to maneuver with is called uh, vasana which is like deep latent memory. That's the samskara. The word samsara literally means to go around in a circle 
and it refers to this whole circle. Yeah. So samsara is the, the turning of the wheel of perception. Samskara is physical. It's physical and psychological, but it has to do more with memory. Yeah. And the samsara is a way of talking about the whole process. Okay, we can keep going? Yeah. At the break, there was a lot of chocolate going around, <laughs> and I'm looking at the side effects of it right now. <laughs> can everybody see this, this board? Um, when I work with uh, clinicians, they love acronyms. So this is an acronym that I've been developing to work with clinicians because uh, it just seems to attract people at workshops. Um, <laughs> I call it SANE. And this is a description of how to take this whole process into your daily life. The first part of the acronym I call STOP, or STOPPING, which is just retranslating the term SHAMATA, which uh, refers to being able to stop and to calm down. And I think for all of us, we really need this practice. We need tools to learn how to stop running how to stop fooling ourselves. Is this the wedge, right? Okay. Is this the wedge? Yeah. Um, it's the wedge and it's the whole process. Okay. Yeah. So, I think the foundation of our <coughs> spiritual life, even though when we first enter it, seems like it's about getting somewhere, it turns out that it's really about learning how to stop. Because if we can't stop, we can't see anything. And I think all of us need to hear this again and again and again. Sometimes it is so terrifying to stop running. Because we see that our whole personality is constructed uh, around running away. And you could say running away from old patterns that are related to your childhood, but we could also say existentially that we're running around because really at the core of the self, uh, there is no thing there because the core of the self is everything. It's everything. But this terrifies the storyteller. So we start running. When you're able to stop, then you move on to A, which represents um, acceptance. Or you could also translate A as allowing. So the first process is to stop the reactivity, and then we can allow in what's really being felt in our moment-to-moment -moment experience. If you can't accept something, 
then you can't be free of it. The limit of your freedom is the limit of your acceptance. And acceptance doesn't mean condoning something. It just means allowing it into awareness. Sometimes we say to ourselves, consciously or unconsciously, oh, I can't accept that. But actually, deep in our hearts, we need to learn how even what's unforgivable, we can take into our body and allow it in so that we can take wise action. So allowing might mean feeling the effects of an old wound or feeling the effect of someone who treated you really badly and then saying, I'm never going to see that person again. I mean, that might be the compassionate action, as I will never see that person again. But in doing so, you're not placing them outside of your heart. Because to keep placing things outside of our heart is to build up walls that are so, it's so exhausting. Yes, Doug? Okay, I'm stuck here, and I don't want this to seem like a hair splitting stick because it's yeah. not sort of fundamental. When one talks about acceptance, are we accepting things that might be regarded as fact, or are they stories? In other words, if someone behaves to us in a way that is harmful or hurtful, mm-hmm. I would treat that as a fact. They, there was an instrumentality to it, they behave in a certain way. If someone comes to us with a proposition that we don't agree with and we say, I can't accept that, mm-hmm. that's, that's reacting to a story. In other words, it's not a fact yet. Yeah, I'm referring more to the first example. Facts. And in that way, I would not translate it in that example as acceptance, but more as allowing. Allowing in another possibility. If you can't stop, you can't allow in another possibility. Or if you have a specific viewpoint, specific paradigm, it's hard to allow in another paradigm. So in other words, there are barriers to acceptance that are that, that may be happening in ways that we are not fully aware of, but still, yes. once we're aware, we can actually do something. Yes. Yeah. I always think about this in terms of like different schools of meditation or yoga practice. Like a lot of people have such bias against another school, you know? And if you ever feel in yourself a really strong bias against another school, you probably don't understand it. Right? It's just rubbing up the tendency against some viewpoint that you have. And it's not that you shouldn't have a viewpoint. And I wanted to stress this yesterday, but I don't think we got to it, but Abhinivesha and allowing really go hand in hand because I don't want you to interpret this as, well, I shouldn't have any viewpoints. Some of us, our work is actually being able to stop so we can trust our viewpoint. That it's actually the superficial viewpoint over your ideals that's in the way. And when you stop, you can see more clearly. And you can really learn how to trust yourself. So it's not that we don't have a viewpoint, but we just see it as a viewpoint. And some of us, we need more work trusting when we have a particular viewpoint that it's valid. It's valid. We should act on it. But without clinging. So that's the process of allowing. 
or accepting. Which, if we went further into this, really gets into the realm of forgiveness also. I mean, forgiveness seems to have everything to do with allowing something into your heart that you've been walling up or or defending. Mm -hmm. What do you do with the pain of that, though, of something that if you accept something and there's a lot of pain that's generated from that, like, where where do you put that? Like, do you just accept that as well? But it could become overwhelming, maybe, if has pain. Yeah. Usually, if your organism cannot metabolize or digest uh, pain, then um, it compartmentalizes it, which is sort of what we call trauma. Right? Um, so sometimes we have to go really slowly and really gently, which is what we're going to deal with tomorrow, so that when pain arises, we can meet it just bit by bit, just touching it, touching it, so that it starts to get to know that everything's okay. This is how I think about the teacher-student relationship all the time. There's this Zen metaphor where it said that the student is like a little chick inside an egg, pecking from inside the egg, and the teacher is like the chick outside the egg, pecking. And they're both pecking, one from the inside, one from the outside, until the shell cracks. So, although it looks like teacher-student, it's actually flat. And they're both trying to figure out how to find the spot in the shell. Because if they're pecking at two different places, they're going to be going at it a long time. But if they can find a way to attune to one another, then the shell cracks more efficiently. And that's the process. I mean, that's the process. How do we do this? Well, sometimes when there's so much pain, as you're suggesting, and we can't metabolize it by ourselves, we need somebody else to help hold us. Or we need a form, like the form of practice, to hold us so that it's safe enough that we can start to digest old feelings that maybe have been too hard to uh, metabolize uh, in the past. And if we don't do that work, it spills out in all kinds of ways. Do you think that this practice is effective enough um, as a psychotherapist, because you mm-hmm. you were in practice before, yeah. to feel that this independently is enough for someone who has experienced trauma? Or do you think they should do both? Like, would this be an okay practice? Well, I, I don't way? see this practice right. and psychotherapy as different things. So if there is a relationship with a teacher and teachings in a community that is supportive enough that the practice can really hold someone to be able to work with all this, then absolutely. But then sometimes one of those pieces is not strong enough and I'll say to somebody, okay, you've been doing the practice for a while but there's still this stuff around, Uh, you should go see a psychotherapist. But then I consider what the psychotherapist is doing with them also spiritual practice. So I think nowadays it's uh, uh, helpful to kind of use psychotherapy as an adjunct to practice. Especially in times where people often can't have close relationships with their teachers. Um, Psychotherapy is really, really helpful. Because there are all kinds of ways to use practice to avoid 
real developmentally, real developmental and psychological issues. And uh, this is often called spiritual bypassing, where you use spiritual practice to avoid, or you use letting go of stories to avoid really owning a perspective. Or you use the meditation practice on this side of feeling to actually avoid deep feeling. Uh, I just, um, from hearing this discussion, I had just had an experience from the walking meditation to the end of the meditation that was very similar and touched on a lot of what we're talking about. Yeah. And um, when I was doing the walking meditation, I had some uh, voice come up that was like, um, uh, "Why can't you accept your father?" Mm. And then I was, I was like, I, I don't even know where this came from. Then I was like, you know, because he's depressed, he's tragic, and I just, mm. I don't want to be around that, it's toxic, yeah. you know? And then I heard, I heard something that came up, it's like, can you accept that part of yourself? Yeah. And then through the whole meditation, mm-hmm. I uh, realized I've been so hard on myself trying to do this meditation, it was so hard to just be soft on myself. Uh-huh. And I realized when I was with sadness that was coming up, yeah. or tragedy, and, and, and my relationship to myself, I was, uh, I tried to just hold myself there. Mm-hmm. And I realized that the sadness didn't even need a reason to be there, and it wasn't, it wasn't my sadness. Yeah. And when I stopped seeing it as my sadness, it just yeah. became sadness. Mm-hmm. And then I, I began to actually feel the sensation of sadness moving through me. Yeah. And I didn't have a story with it when it wasn't mine. Yeah. And then I was hearing, like, guidance just of how to let it go, go through me yeah. and then it was cool because another thing came on and it was like uh, oh well, well you're talking to yourself now so you better stop talking to yourself and then because uh, you're like you're, you're, like, you're guiding yourself through this and then, yeah. and then there was another thing it was like well what's to say that this is my voice uh-huh. and not just a voice so it I'm sounds hearing. like the practice is working yeah <laughs> so, so if we can just break that down a little bit so sometimes a feeling arises like a strong emotion, and we think that glued <coughs> inside that feeling is the story, that they're one and the same thing. Like, this is the sadness about my father. So what we're trying to do here is feel that, and then what's called in the tradition anupashana, which means see and go on seeing, and see again and see again. Anupashana. Anu means to, to return. Pasha is an I, like vipassana, vipassana. V means to go in, pasha is an I, seeing. Anupashana means to see and then return again and look, and then look again, and then look again. So the feeling arises, oh, that's sadness? Yeah, that's about my dad. And then all these stories about your dad. Okay, then go at it again. Okay, where's the sadness in the body? You have different images of father. And then, like, start to separate that out so that you can feel the raw sensation of the sadness eventually without having to hold a particular story. There's a practice that I offer people a lot on Mother's Day or Father's Day. I know many of you, we've done this before. I'll use Father's Day as an example because we're talking about dads. Where... You feel your breathing until there's calmness, 
and then you visualize in your mind's eye or in your heart your dad alive or not alive even if you didn't know and then you just feel what's there then you visualize your father the same age that you are right now and you feel him in your heart that age and you picture like what he was wearing what kind of loafers did he have hair then or not glasses did he shave close shave did he do up his shirt or not did he tuck in his shirt like you really get into the deep and you just really feel it then you visualize your father five years old so this is your father before he knew about (coughs) you so he's not your father there right it's this man this human being before he had any clue that you were going to be in his life and then you picture him being born and it's this beautiful process of like giving your dad a break Mm. (laughs) because we take this beautiful human being and we frame him in this image or in our unconscious idea of what a father is supposed to be and sometimes that boundary is really helpful but poor person we're always judging them against this archetypal ideal that nobody can live up to and then we always say to ourselves oh I wish my parents just gave me some space or just gave me a break but we don't do that for them and I think there, is, there are times where we need to take our parents and just allow in, we need to stop, and allow in this possibility that there is a human being, and you and this human being have a relationship. But can we also see the human being behind the frame that we've imprisoned them in? A frame that sometimes... Uh, is so helpful and a frame that sometimes like any frame is so limiting Michael would those those archetypes that mm-hmm. be a form of samskara samskaras are archetypes okay yeah. and you know archetype is a kind of Jungian mm-hmm. idea but this is an interesting thing about Jung is that Jung could never figure out if an archetype was cultural or biological mm-hmm. And that was his big difference from Freud, is that Freud thought that all our patterns were from childhood. And Jung (coughs) thought that all of our deep patterns were not really from childhood, they were actually from, and he couldn't figure out what part of it was genetic, like from your ancestry, and what part of it was cultural. And he thought this was all mixed up. And um, so that's what we mean. So, So sanskara could be translated as a Jungian archetype. So it's, a, it's a very similar, similar notion. Uh, the last thing I'll say about this is that Carl Jung was heavily influenced by yoga philosophy and hid his sources very, very well, as was the de rigueur of the time. Um, so a lot of his ideas, like Freud's definition of the ego, is very different than Jung's definition of the ego. For Jung, the ego 
is a defense mechanism and the first function of the ego is to like or dislike. Sound familiar? <laughs> yeah. But that's the function of the ego. It's born. So the ego, do you recognize something here? Is born from liking and disliking. And before liking and disliking, there's no sense of self. There's just what's happening. So, wonder where he got that. <laughs> Probably just came up with it on its own through his scientific investigation. <laughs> um, let's take a break here, and, uh, and then we'll keep going. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. If you like this podcast, you can support it by subscribing on iTunes or SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rate us and leave a comment. Your feedback helps to distinguish us from the pack. You can also support us by word of mouth. Tell a friend or send a tweet. Finally, please consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Michael Stone. Even a couple of dollars a month will help us reach our goals. To learn about Michael's retreats and his online courses, go to michaelstoneteaching.com. Once again, that's michaelstoneteaching.com. With your support, we'll continue to build a community library about mindfulness and mental health that can be shared with the world. Thank you for supporting this community without walls.